I conducted several trials uh, showing that a plant-based diet is twice as effective compared to the standard American Diabetes Association recommended diet. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's really exciting to be able to be in a place to help people uh, using plant-based nutrition and also to look at the mechanisms behind. Uh, you know, why does it work more efficiently? How is it even possible that with all the carbs in the plant-based nutrition, we are able to improve diabetes? It's super exciting. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and today I'm so honored to welcome Dr. Hannah Koliova. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for Good. having me. Oh, you're welcome. And I'm so excited to speak to you because you have the knowledge of some amazing, cool stuff that my audience is going to love. So, but first, I love to hear stories of why physicians became doctors. And can you t give us a little information about maybe a plant-based diet and how you became a doctor? Absolutely. Uh, when I was 14 years old, uh, it really struck me how people were becoming more and more sick, like the generation of my parents uh, just, you know, was suffering from heart disease and cancer and just so many health problems. And I, I started asking myself, well, is, is there anything that I can do to prevent those diseases uh, from developing? Uh, you know, like for example, smoking is a uh, is a good example. If I if I don't smoke, if I never start smoking, how much can I uh, influence my health? And uh, these questions led me to exploring all the options in, in the lifestyle. And I came to the conclusion that a plant-based diet is one of the best ways how to prevent the chronic disease. And so I became vegan when I was 14 years old. Uh, my parents were not very happy with that decision and they were really concerned. However, uh, they stopped trying to persuade me, and then my mom told me eventually, well, fine, do your vegan diet, but you need to cook for yourself. <laughs> and she was thinking, you know, that, was, that would be the end of it. <laughs> I was like, fine, okay, let's <laughs> do it. <laughs> and that started a wonderful journey. Uh, of course, not all the recipes turned out perfectly in the beginning, like there were some disasters in the beginning, uh, but I learned from the mistakes and, uh, you know, that started really a wonderful journey. And once I started experiencing, although I was fully healthy, I still was able to tell the difference between uh, the, you know, high fat, high meat, high cheese diet and a plant-based diet. I was able to tell the difference in the way how I felt, in my performance, uh, in the clarity of mind. And so I decided to stick to it and also look for opportunities how to help other people realize these connections and how uh, not to become sick in the first place, but if they are sick, then help them realize the connections and make the adjustments that are necessary in order for them to, to become well. And uh, that's why I decided to become a doctor. And uh, during my specialty training as an endocrinologist, uh, I, my, my heart really went out to the patients with diabetes um, because the official recommendations uh, were just stating, um, you know, carb counting as the main strategy and these people were mostly left up with meat and dairy, uh, you know, as their staple foods, basically. Mm -hmm. And this made me incredible, incredibly sad. Mm -hmm. And I decided to do something personally to help them. And so that started my journey uh, in plant-based nutrition for people with diabetes. And I conducted several trials uh, showing that a plant-based diet is twice as effective compared to the standard American Diabetes Association recommended diet. Mm -hmm. So it's really exciting to be able to be in a place to help people 
using plant-based nutrition and also to look at the mechanisms behind uh, you know why does it work more efficiently how is it even possible that with all the carbs in the plant-based nu- nutrition we're able to improve diabetes it's super exciting mm-hmm. absolutely well, there's so much right there <laughs> first of all you were 14 I yes. mean, when I was 14, I was like, where's my driver's license? I wasn't worried about lifestyle <laughs> diseases and, <laughs> and all the things. Um, so can you, was there someone in particular that was ill or, I mean, you were just so perceptive as a child. Uh, there was no one particularly ill. Uh, okay. My, my grandma uh, was a diabetic, like a mild diabetic, and mm. died of breast cancer at the end uh, when she was fairly young, at the age of 63. Wow. And that made a huge impact on me because I really loved her and I missed her a lot. Uh, so that was one of the impressions that like started my thinking about, you know, what can we do uh, to prevent disease and also to cure the disease when, when it's there. Amazing. That is, a, I, I love stories of young people coming to mm-hmm. like wisdom and these amazing conclusions that, you know, you, most people would travel hundreds of miles and go and visit someone, you know, living in a cave as a monk or something, but you come to it just naturally. It's incredible. So let's get to the meat of it. Well, so to speak, <laughs> um, what is the actual, would you say mechanism or can you explain it for those who may not understand the mechanism of actually what causes, let's say, you know, maybe describe type one and type two diabetes and then why the plant-based diet is so phenomenal mm-hmm. in helping these people. Yeah, this is super exciting. So type 2 diabetes uh, is uh, caused by insulin resistance uh, due to buildup of uh, fat in the muscle and in the liver. Uh, Our adipose tissue has only a certain capacity to store fat. So if we keep overeating, uh, if we eat a high fat diet, uh, the fat still needs to be storing somewhere but the adipose tissue has only a certain capacity and once it's reached then the fat starts uh, spilling over to uh, the muscle and liver cells and other organs in our body and this leads to insulin resistance inside those cells. Uh, That's why the insulin that's produced to push glucose inside the cells is not able to open the door for glucose uh, and let the glucose in uh, as efficiently as it used to. Uh, And it's because of the buildup of fat inside the muscle and liver cells particularly. So it's not the extra sugar in the diet. Uh, You know, it's mainly the extra fat in the diet that is the culprit of developing diabetes. And uh, if we want to, Um, solve the problem, then the problem would be to get rid of the extra fat in the muscle and liver cells. And the most efficient way is to cut down on the fat in our diet. And a plant-based diet is an excellent example how how we can achieve it. Because if we still include some dairy and meat, even if they're low-fat, the percentage of fat that we're consuming is fairly high. It's much more than on a plant-based diet. So if we cut down all the dairy and all the meat and all the eggs, and if we limit the oil consumption uh, and are reasonable with nut and seed consumption, then the percentage of fat in our diet may be about 10 to 15 percent of total energy uh, which is a low-fat diet but it it doesn't really feel like it you know you will be able to still enjoy uh, you know plenty of flavor in in the plant-based nutrition Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's one of the most natural ways how to cut down on fat Uh, and promote um, dissipating of fat in the muscle and liver cells that's causing the insulin resistance in type 2 diabetes. So it's uh, naturally going to be a lower fat diet, a whole food plant-based diet, which will lead to a decrease in the intramyocellular lipid, basically, that's going in the muscle, 
and you're clearing out those little doors and the insulin works and the glucose goes in and things get better. And this happens really, really quickly. At least that's in my experience yeah. with patients. Tell me, can you, do you, can you share any stories of like amazing rapid recoveries? I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> Usually we see changes within a few days where we need to reduce the medications for people with diabetes so that they don't get hypoglycemic. So it's really amazing. Um, to give you another analogy why plant-based diet work, um, it's like when you have a chimney uh, and a fireplace at home and you know, you wanna have a nice fire and enjoy the warmth of the fire but somehow you get this smoke whenever you light up the fire and you're like, what is it? You know, there's so much smoke. And one of the solutions how not to get the smoke is not to make the fire, <laughs> you know, right. uh, or keep the fire super low. That would be an analogy to keeping your carbs very low in your diet. But in the first place, you got the fireplace to enjoy the, the fire and the warmth of the fire. So uh, a much better way is to clean the chimney and the fireplace, and then you will be able to burn as much wood as you want and enjoy the fire without the smoke. So that's exactly what happens with a plant-based diet. Once we clear the chimney and the fireplace, once we uh, clean the cells from the extra fat that's stored inside the muscle and liver cells, we are able to burn as many carbohydrates as, as, we, as we need to. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's fairly usual uh, that people, when they switch to a plant-based diet, might start consuming like three times more carbohydrates than they used to. <laughs> but their blood sugar is low. Uh, in fact, it's so low that we can reduce their medications and sometimes we can, uh, you know, get them off their medications completely. Sometimes they still need to, uh, to stay on some meds. It really depends. There's no guarantee in life. But anyway, uh, everyone benefits from, from a plant-based diet. We haven't seen one single person who would not benefit from a plant-based diet. Exactly. And that Exactly. So there's so, again, so much in just a few phrases that you said. So I used to, to describe that as the, the glucose or the high blood sugars is the smoke. And I didn't ever right. put the analogy of the fire. That's really good. But I said, it's the smoke from the fire right. and our medicines are just trying to waft the fire right. and keep it down. Yeah. But if we put out the gasoline that's fueling the fire, which is removing the, the high yeah. fat, which exactly it. And that was one of my challenges as a physician was learning how to, you know, eight years ago, I, there wasn't really anywhere for me to go and say, when I switched to a plant-based diet myself, like, how do I work with patients? And <laughs> it was a trial and error. It was, it was almost frightening because you have to cut, at least for me, a lot of my patients, I'm cutting insulin in half the first day that they're a hundred percent. And <clears throat> it's pretty dramatic. They feel yeah. great. Mm -hmm. um, so have you noticed that, um, blood sugars will go up even with certain nut consumption? Like you said, reasonable nut consumption, like avocados mm -hmm. as well. What would you consider a reasonable amount for majority of people? So we advise people that they may only use, for example, one tablespoon to sprinkle their oatmeal uh, because uh, in the initial stages, particularly when you need to lose uh, so much weight and when you need need to get rid of all the extra fat in your muscle and liver cells, the more you're able to cut down on the, on the fats in your diet, the better. Mm -hmm. uh, so you don't really need much. And, gotcha. you know, you can still use almond milk because um, the fat content is, is super low. It's watered down. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not that you cannot consume anything from nuts and seeds, mm -hmm. uh, but we just limit um, the super concentrated foods and particularly oils. Mm. We teach people how to use vegetable broth and soy sauce or just water to saute their onions. And, uh, right. you know, we, we teach them how to prepare their food without using oils. Absolutely. And that can be done with any recipe that I've used. Yeah. Oil, you can, you can find a replacement for regardless, even baked goods. Not that we should mm. be eating a lot of baked goods, but still. <laughs> um, so then when you talk about... Now, your research is in a, a variety of things, especially metabolic health and diabetes. 
Can you talk to a little bit about like meal frequency and timing in diabetes or just in weight, you know, controlling weight in general? Because a lot of that is all tied up yeah. together. So many people still think that in order to maintain their body weight or in order to lose weight, they need to have a lot of small meals during the day. Uh, we conducted a trial several uh, years ago in patients with type 2 diabetes, comparing the common advice of six small meals during the day with only two meals a day, breakfast and lunch. So the caloric intake was the same, uh, but, you know, on one regimen, it was just separated out into six small meals. And on the other one, it was a large breakfast and large lunch. And that was it for the day. <laughs> the patients were quite concerned in the beginning if they could even do the two-meal diet plan. Uh, so I assured them that's up to me <laughs> to teach them all the, uh, all the details. And all we were asking was the willingness to give it a try. And uh, so we, we started with a one-week tutorial for both of the regimens because uh, it sounds like an easy task to do six small meals during the day, but it's not as easy as many might think. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I did it with my patients myself. And I was hungry most of the day because in order to have six small meals during the day, the meals really need to be small. Right, right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, your breakfast is pretty small. Then you get to eat something in, in, in a few hours. But in the meantime, I was starving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's how most of my patients were feeling as well. Uh, you know, at the end of the trial, it was a crossover trial, which means that uh, all the participants tried both, both six meals a day and two meals a day in a random order. Some of them started with two meals a day, and then after 12 weeks, they switched over to six meals. The other one, the other group started with six meals and then switched over to two meals. Okay. Uh, and... At the end of the trial, we found out that people were losing more weight on two meals a day. Their metabolism improved more on two meals a day. And what was most striking probably was that hunger was reduced more on two meals a day. So people were feeling more full on two meals a day, which was like a super surprising finding for most of our patients. And in fact, most of our patients uh, decided to stick to the two meals a day uh, at the end of the of the trial oh, wow. because they found out that it's really working for them metabolically. Their diabetes is getting better. They're losing weight, and they're also feeling better. So why in the world would you stick to six meals a day when you can try two meals a day? Uh, for for some people, uh, it may feel like two meals a day is too strict. Um, and some people may decide to still keep their lit dinner, uh, but to those, I, I would like to say, keep your dinner light, you know, mm -hmm. keep it like as a big salad. It shouldn't be anything heavy. It shouldn't be French fries, you know, it shouldn't be anything that's super heavy before you go to sleep. Mm -hmm. So if you need, if you're hungry in the evening, if you feel like you need to eat something, you can eat a piece of fruit and a little bit of popcorn maybe, or just a, a bowl of salad. Keep your dinner super light so that you're hungry in the morning because it's the breakfast that jumpstarts our metabolism. Mm. Uh, as my, at my postdoctoral fellowship at Loma Linda University, uh, I was studying uh, the data from more than 50,000 people uh, that, well, that were followed for more than seven years. And we were looking at their dietary habits, at how many meals a day they were eating if they were consuming breakfast and at the timing of the meals. And we were tracking the changes in their body mass index. Uh, if they were prone to losing weight or gaining weight or, or if their weight was stable. And what we found out was quite striking. We found a linear relationship between the number of meals and uh, changes in body weight. So the more meals people were eating, the more they were likely to gain weight. 
when we had three meals a day as a reference, then snacking, uh, that means eating four or even more meals a day, uh, was really increasing the chances of gaining weight. Uh, but people who were eating two meals a day were even better off than those eating three meals a day. Uh, there's, uh, there's a small group of Seventh-day Adventists uh, that uh, consume two meals a day as a traditional um, way of eating, uh, which comes, you know, it, it's, it's really an a- ancient habit. It's not as uh, modern as we might think. Mm-hmm. It really comes uh, back to uh, se- several centuries uh, and maybe even several thousand years back. Uh, so uh, when people are consuming less frequently, when they're eating only two to three meals per day, uh, they are um, better off in terms of weight management compared to those who like to snack. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, breakfast was clearly the most protective meal of the day. People who made their breakfast the largest meal of the day uh, were the best off uh, compared with those who were eating lunch or even dinner, the largest meal of the day. And also the length of night fast mattered. The longer the night fast, the better. Uh, So when people were on two meals a day and their night fast was about 18 hours, that means the meals were some some five to six hours apart. Uh, that showed the most beneficial results. So when you did your research with the the crossover study, mm-hmm. the first one you mentioned was was this a plant based diet as well? Uh, it was very much plant based in order to get all the fiber. Uh, they didn't have to be- become vegan though. It was not a requirement for the study. We uh, gave them plenty of recipes with, you know, that were plant based, but it was not a requirement to uh, skip the meat and dairy completely. Okay, and then with the Seventh Day Adventist. So you're saying that the breakfast is the most important meal as far as being protective in the mechanisms of weight gain and metabolic health. Can you, is there a reason why, or is there, is there an understanding of why that occurs? Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating area of research. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the uh, chronobiology and uh, our circadian rhythms are super exciting uh, areas of area of research. So, uh, for example, shift workers have a higher risk of developing obesity and type two diabetes, uh, even though their caloric intake might be the same as in people who um, work day shifts. Um, and that's one of the reasons. Um, that shift work disrupts the circadian rhythms. And we do the same if we eat late at night, for example. We do the same, we disrupt our circadian rhythms. That's why we tend to gain more weight. Uh, For example, uh, one study uh, compared the same meal eaten at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and looked at how many calories we store in the form of fat. And we, even though it was the same meal after dinner, uh, you know, people were storing much more fat um, compared with the same meal eaten at breakfast or at lunch. So there's definitely uh, the hormonal changes throughout the day make a big difference. And uh, this is just how we are wired to start our day with breakfast. Tell our body, now is the day. Now you need to eat. And after sunset, traditionally, uh, you know, people were not in such, uh, such a, a position to eat so, so much food as we are now. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't have electricity. <laughs> they just went to bed and were rising early, right? right. Uh, so that's like a traditional way of living. And we're coming uh, kind of back there and we are learning uh, how to live more wisely even with the resources that we have today. So eating breakfast and lunch, breakfast being the larger meal, two meals a day helps with weight management. What about blood sugars? Is there any studies as far as blood sugars improving by eating the meals in the morning, larger meals and such as well? I mean, is there significant change even if it's Absolutely. the same meal? 
Yeah, that's a fascinating uh, study done by Daniela Jakubovic uh, from Israel. Um, she did quite a few studies in people with diabetes, uh, looking at the difference between eating breakfast and skipping breakfast uh, and the effect on glycemic control throughout the whole day. And she found out that after skipping breakfast, the whole glycemic uh, control is impaired during the whole day. Uh, the blood sugar is about 20 to 30% higher after skipping breakfast, which is like contraintuitive, right? You would expect the, the glucose, the blood sugar to be lower when you skip breakfast, when you don't eat. But it's the opposite. When you measure 24-hour um, glucose control in people with diabetes, uh, it's significantly impaired when you skip breakfast. And it's due to impaired uh, insulin signaling, impaired insulin secretion, and also impaired incretin secretion. Incretins mm. are hormones that are secreted in our gut when we ingest a meal. And they promote insulin secretion. Uh, and patients with diabetes uh, have a diminished incretin effect. So they are able to secrete less incretins. So for them particularly, it's important to use all the tools we, we can to boost their incretin secretion. And definitely bre eating breakfast is one of the tools that can increase the incretin secretion. And another one is a plant-based diet. We did a study comparing a veggie burger with the same um, amount of energy and macronutrient content from a meat-based burger. And we were studying uh, the incretin effect in patients with diabetes. And we found out that after the veggie burger, the incretin secretion was about 30% higher than after the meat-based burger. Uh, and that's, a, that's an effect seen in medications that were specifically developed for this condition. So it's Absolutely. pretty impressive, you know, when you, when you combine these simple tools, plant-based diet and eating breakfast as your, uh, as your largest meal, uh, right. you can really compensate for the deficit um, caused by diabetes. Uh, you might be even able to get rid of your diabetes completely. Absolutely. So now we've talked, we're going to talk about gut health, but I want to ask one other question. You mentioned, okay, so it's breakfast and largest meal, then lunch, having, you know, 16, 18 hours mm -hmm. of fasting overnight um, with six hours or so between your meals. Okay. So that's a large, that's a big breakfast and lunch. We'll say. <laughs> now for these are people um, who don't necessarily, let's say they don't, you need to lose weight. So we want to be careful and make sure they're eating enough to maintain a proper weight. Um, but are there any particular foods that we should be focusing on outside of removing, you know, a, a lot of high fat foods like oils and avocados and nuts that help more than others as far as controlling blood sugars like vegetables, beans? Is there any particular area we should focus on when we are eating these two very important meals in the day? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we know about food processing as one of the major factors that can um, cause fluctuations in blood sugar. So if you eat a lot of white bread, your, your blood sugar may still spike even if you skip all the dairy and meat. So it's definitely a good thing to go uh, back to the garden, back to uh, the produce, um, you know that you can you can get it in as a natural state as possible mm -hmm. to eat your grains as whole grains like brown rice and millet and quinoa uh, these are great sources of carbohydrate uh, that also contain a lot of fiber and uh, this will lead to stable blood sugars instead of the spikes after uh, sugar even sugar sweetened beverages, those should be completely avoided. Um, and, uh, you know, more processed foods like white bread or white rice. So uh, it's, it's good to, to really focus on um, having whole grain um, instead of uh, processed, processed grains. So avoiding any processed foods. So is there any particular foods um, in the whole food plant-based diet particular um, that might be more beneficial than others? 
it seems like um, leafy greens and beans uh, provide the most benefits to people with diabetes and sta stabilize their blood sugar the most. Mm. Um, but all plant foods are wonderful and it's about combination. Uh, sometimes um, um, when people are not used to eating as many beans and you know they get they get gas, uh, it might take a while. Um, but if they keep con consuming small amounts of beans every day, their gut microbiome will start start adapting, and you know they will develop uh, the healthy gut bacteria that they will able to uh, get rid of their gas. Which is an excellent segue to let's talking about gut microbiome, which I know you enjoy to speak about as well. Can you talk us a little bit about why the gut microbiome? Well, let's explain what it is for those who may be living under a rock and don't know by now what it is, but what um, importance it is as far as metabolic health, diabetes, weight management. So gut microbiome is um, the, gut, the bacteria that live in your gut. And we have more bacteria in our gut than we have cells in our body. So we want to take care of the gut bacteria that live there. Um, and uh, it, it's interesting to look at the differences between different populations in the world. For example, people living in Africa or South America have a larger diversity of their gut microbiome compared to Western countries. Um, a larger diversity means more kinds of bacteria. You can think about it as of your financial portfolio. Uh, you know, the more diversified it is, the better. Uh, you don't want to have only one kind of bacteria and then some disaster comes and you, you know, the bacteria gets killed and you are in, in a big trouble. You want to have a nice portfolio so that uh, when a crisis hits, uh, you can rely on at least, you know, the other ones that are still remaining. Absolutely. So with gut bacteria, it's the same. You want to have a large diversity uh, in your gut microbiome of the gut bacteria. And it seems that plant-based eating, uh, people living in Africa and South America, the traditional uh, diets are very much plant-based uh, and animal foods are uh, very rare because they are for the wealthy. <laughs> so um, the, the diets are very much plant-based uh, and the diversity of their gut microbiome is uh, much more pronounced than in the Western countries. But it's not only about plant-based diets themselves. It's also about the whole way of living. Uh, for example, you know, in Africa, you will grow your own food uh, and uh, you are in more contact with, with nature, with the soil. You consume some of the bacteria. Whereas in Western countries, we are so obsessed with sanitation <laughs> that we kill all the bacteria that we can. We are super careful about not uh, consuming any uh, microscopic <laughs> amounts of dirt. Uh, so we get rid of all the bacteria that people, you know, traditionally consume. Uh, in other parts of the world because mm -hmm. if you wash veggies only uh, in water and with your hand uh, there will be some microscopic uh, you know dirt and bacteria living in the soil which you will consume which will di diversify your portfolio mm. so it's it's not only about eating plant-based foods it's all, also about how you grow the foods how and how you eat them. Mm. So if you visit your grandma and pick an apple from the tree, you can just eat the apple from the tree. The bacteria will not harm you from the, from the garden. They're, mm. they're healthy for you. Absolutely, and there's less inflammatory bowel disease and those type of things in, in those countries as well, like Uganda and such. So what about, what does the diversity of our portfolio have to do with metabolic health as far as you know weight management and with diabetes what's the research say there so there's a nice uh, connection between the gut microbiome composition and metabolic health uh, 
Some bacteria are much, import, much more important than others, uh, particularly the bacteria that feed on fiber mm. uh, that produce short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, for example, are the most important ones. A good example is acute bacteria that's called Fecalibacterium prausnitzi. It's a, it's a difficult name, uh, but it's a, it's a really cool bacteria. Mm-hmm. Fecalibacterium prausnitzi is very protective. It's one of the butyrate-producing bacteria, so it's very good for your metabolic health. And it's been found uh, that patients with diabetes have lower counts of this cute bacteria. Hmm. And the, the lower counts of Fecalibacterium prausnitzi in diabetes also correlates with insulin resistance and with inflammation. Uh, and markers of inflammation such as CRP, uh, C-reactive peptide uh, protein. So... Uh, it seems that um, this bacteria plays an important role, and if we don't consume enough fiber, then um, we may suffer the consequences in the form of metabolic disease. Mm. To put this to a test, we put people on a plant-based diet, and we're looking at this bacteria, this Fecalibacterium prausnitzi, and we found out that the counts of Fecalibacterium prausnitzi really increased on a plant-based diet. And the increase correlated with changes in insulin sensitivity and changes in their body weight. Mm. Uh, So it's definitely the gut, the changes in your gut microbiome um, are so much connected to your metabolic outcomes. We are, we are just not aware of the connections, but they're happening. Wow. Their secret communication. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. There's so much, and also with mood and the gut microbiome, and it's really interesting. Food allergies and right. working with people. I, I work a lot with people with SIBO, and you know those people yeah. improve when you move them into yeah. gradually. It's it's it is a fascinating thing. I love talking about gut bacteria. Um, there's so many things, and I know we're we're mm-hmm. pushing our time, but I really want to talk to you also about. Um, when I watched you speak um, at the Plantrition Project Conference last year, you were talking about beta cell regeneration, which can you explain, first of all, maybe some people don't understand what beta cells are and then what that would mean as far as the future for maybe those with type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Absolutely. Uh, Beta cells are insulin-producing cells in our pancreas, and that's the only place where we can produce insulin. Uh, By the time type 2 diabetes is diagnosed, about 50% of the beta cells are gone. They're dead. And we're only trying to maintain what's remaining. Uh, And uh, the current options are not very satisfactory. In spite of all the fancy medications, it seems uh, that the numbers of beta cells are constantly declining after the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. So eventually, um, you know, you are losing losing even more of your beta cells, uh, which means that you are relying on external insulin that you need to inject. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is super unfortunate. And... Um, You know, that led us to a question, is there anything we can do to prevent this decline? Uh, So let's say if you are overweight, uh, your beta cell function is already compromised. You know, you are not producing as much insulin as a healthy person. Hmm. So we took uh, people who are overweight and at a higher risk of diabetes and we were measuring their ability to secrete insulin after a standard meal uh, in five time points, 0, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 120, and 180 minutes. So three hours after the meal, we were measuring their blood glucose, but also their insulin secretion. Hmm. And we were able to quantify their beta cell function. Hmm. And a fascinating thing happened. After 16 weeks on a plant-based diet, their beta cell function not only remained the same, but it improved, Hmm. which means that we were able to wake up some of the beta cells that that were already in the process of dying off 
but we were able to still save them and we were able to increase their the insulin secretion based on the plasma glucose levels which was super encouraging for everyone who doesn't want to develop diabetes in the first place uh, and uh, in the second place also for people with diabetes because there's always some beta cells um, that are not producing insulin but they're they're not completely dead yet and mm. there's a potential that we can still save them so it's like reviving beta cells that are in the icu is kind of what yeah, i told exactly. patients exactly and so do you think that's because we're now removing the fat that was maybe in stored in the beta cells or is there some other mechanism that's been theorized or or, or known yeah, removing the fat seems to be one of the most important mechanisms behind mm. improving the beta cell function. Because the fat stored inside the cells is the most disruptive um, thing that can happen to the cell. Makes so sense. if we are able to get rid of that, you Absolutely. know, the metabolic benefits are following. So when we compare, so the type two diabetes is uh, basically due to lifestyle, high fat diet. Right. Now, if we move to type one or even type one and a half, which are an interesting class of diabetics yes. to work with. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about, first of all, just explain maybe what type one is and being autoimmune disease. And then what type of research or budding research does there look like that possibly, you know, beta cell regeneration in those individuals uh, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease where um, the immune system uh, dis disrupts all the beta cells and mm -hmm. kills them basically. So these people need to rely on their external insulin, on their insulin injections. Uh, and now the question is, is there anything we can do for them using a plant-based diet? Uh, there are a few case studies showing significant improvements in insulin sensitivity after switching to a plant-based diet. So in spite of consuming much more carbohydrate, these people become so insulin sensitive that for example, they, they triple their carbohydrate intake, but they're still able to reduce their insulin dose by half, mm -hmm. which is amazing. They're not able to completely get rid of their insulin, but even if they reduce their insulin requirements, that's huge mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, not only their health, uh, but also in terms of um, the costs, saving, saving significant amounts of money mm -hmm. with, the, with the prices of insulin. And also a plant-based diet will improve their um, cardiometabolic outcomes as well, their blood lipids and their blood pressure. At the end, it's not the high blood sugar uh, that's the killer in diabetes or killer number one in diabetes. It's mainly the high blood lipids and other cardiometabolic risk factors. So it's the cardiovascular disease that's the killer. So a plant-based diet will reduce all these cardiometabolic risk factors, mm -hmm. uh, and that's probably the most important uh, finding. Yeah, I would say my experience with type 1 diabetics is that they do a much lower insulin need, even though they're eating a lot more carbohydrates. But I mean, this would go back to insulin sensitivity in your muscle and liver cells, yeah. right? Because you're removing the fat component. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there any research on potential pancreatic like beta cell, like rebirth or trans, you know, any type of transplants? What is there any hope on the horizon for type one is actually finding a cure? Uh, so the research on uh, stem cells um, seems promising. Uh, there's a lot of ethical controversy and ethical issues uh, sure. around stem cells. Right. Um, but if we are able to make the stem cells produce insulin, make them become beta cells that would be fully functional, mm -hmm. uh, that might be a new cure for, for type one diabetes. Mm. Um, the research is still on the way, uh, but it seems like it's a, it's a promising, uh, promising area of research as well. 
So has there ever been any research tonight? This is just my brain thinking about mechanisms of antibodies attacking cells and then bringing the killer cells and such. Like, a vaccine of some sort to attach to antibodies to prevent mm -hmm. the further autoimmune, you know, complications, like for someone, right. maybe a type one and a half who has these autoimmune mechanisms occurring, but that's a much longer process than the acute onset of type one. Typically that's been my experience. Is there anything like that in the works or is that a crazy thought? Uh, yeah, there's um, plenty of studies that are currently underway. Uh, that, you know, try to manipulate the immune system and uh, the production of antibodies. Um, the success uh, is fairly limited, unfortunately. Uh, there's severe side effects of these medications. Uh, and uh, it's yeah. been not as successful as we would hope for. Yeah. It doesn't mean that we will not be, be able to discover something in the near future, but Absolutely. you know we, we have not been successful so far. Could you explain to us what the type one and a half, what these are? I mean, because even a lot of primary care doctors are not familiar with what that is. I was sent a lot of these patients by the mastering diabetes folks. <laughs> I was mm -hmm. taking care of them, but is there is is there a way for someone to be aware of maybe they have type 2 diabetes, it's not controlled, or what are the signs and symptoms of maybe someone is more autoimmune versus right. a type 2? Right. Uh, so uh, diabetology is one of the few areas where you can change the diagnosis and you you know if you <laughs> if you find out that your previous diagnosis was not right mm -hmm. so for example um, someone may be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes um, but you discover that they're not really doing well on these oral medications and that their blood sugar is still you know really high and they're just not responding to the medications that you give them. Mm. Then the next step would be uh, to measure their uh, insulin production because you may discover that you know not much insulin is left. Mm. And then you are in a scenario where you may be wondering, well, you know, it's an adult person, but they're not producing any insulin. So is it type one or the insulin production is very low? So is it type one? Is it type two at the final stages where the insulin production is low as well? Mm. Uh, so there's, you know, there's times when you are uncertain about the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So so that's why we're talking about uh, diabetes uh, 1.5 mm -hmm. uh, because of the of the ambivalent findings that we have. So when you um, say measuring the insulin production, are you talking about C-peptide um, levels? Yes. Okay. So when we get to the C-peptide, so a curious question. So let's say someone's already on insulin. Can you right. measure C-peptide? Is that still worthy yeah. of measuring? I mean, will it still yes. be uh, uh, a good, even though their body's not maybe making less insulin because they're already taking external exogenous insulin? So it's still a worth a good test to test? Yeah, it okay. still measures the uh, uh, intrinsic make. Exactly. So it wouldn't be artificially low if they're already taking insulin external? No. Oh, perfect. It's still a good marker. Excellent. And then what would you be considered a low? So let's say someone gets a C-peptide and they're like, maybe they're a patient and they're like, maybe I'm going to ask my doctor about this to test what level would be considered a concerning level. And would you do a fasting C-peptide level or would you uh, do something else? A fasting C-peptide is one of the best measures for, you know, as a quick test. Uh, if we are not completely sure, we can also do an OGTT and do another one uh, after two hours after mm. the OGTT. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the labs different a little bit, uh, differ a little bit between, between the, the values and the cutoff points. And the diagnosis is really um, done by an endocrinologist. Uh, so it's it's better to always like work with uh, with a professional and mm -hmm. consult the findings with them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So then it's just so something to be aware of. So if, let's say we have a diabetic, they've went to a whole food plant based diet, but they're still requiring you know blood sugars aren't 
as well. So it just might be an indication to get further testing by an endocrinologist who can help them. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Awesome. So as far as I mean, we have seven minutes left. I'm going to get, I'm going to squeeze every little bit of information out of you. So as far as what your recommendation is for the healthy whole food plant diet, like what would you say someone should be eating on a regular basis? Timing is at 6 a.m., 8 a.m.? Like get down to the nitty gritty detail of what that would be. <laughs> An ideal meal plan for a day would be only two meals a day, breakfast and lunch. Um, the earlier we start eating breakfast and the earlier we finish our meals, the better. Uh, mm. So a breakfast eaten somewhere between 6 and 8 a.m. would be ideal. Um, you know, some uh, good portion of oatmeal and fruit and, and nuts and seeds. Um, you know, eat as much uh, to, get, to get full. And then uh, lunch eaten around 1 p.m. or so um, with grains, legumes, so maybe some, some beans and rice and vegetables. Um, that would be another uh, healthy meal. And these two meals uh, would provide enough energy for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you are sedentary, uh, that's more energy than you need anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, if you are an athlete and if you struggle to get in as many calories as you can, then it's probably not the best way how to eat. Mm -hmm. But for those of us who are sedentary and um, do sports, but more like, you know, an hour a day or so, right. two meals a day are completely sufficient. Wow. So do you think just getting to the exercise, should exercise be done before you eat or is it okay to do it after you eat? Would you get benefit either way? Uh, you get benefits either way. Uh, it depends on what you want to improve. So for example, for people with type 2 diabetes whose goal is to get their blood sugar under control after the meal, uh, you know, a short walk after each meal is more beneficial to bring their blood sugar down. But for a person who wants to boost their metabolism, uh, exercising before breakfast is the most beneficial because you train um, your body to be able to survive on and metabolizing fat before you eat carbohydrates. Uh, mm -hmm. So it depends on what benefits you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, uh, most people would benefit from boosting their metabolism. So exercising mm -hmm. in the morning before eating breakfast would be the most beneficial. However, exercise is good any time of the day. Uh, if all you can do is walk around the block after each meal, then it's a good starting point and you should definitely do that. Perfect. I think that is fantastic. And there's so many more things I could ask, but I understand you have time and I want to respect that. So thank you so much for joining us. And we so appreciate your expertise and sharing it with us. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Mm -hmm.